So you wanna watch a movie but you don't know which Choosing the one can be a bitch But Jared and Drew have perfected the art So sit back, relax, and trust the dark It's Dartboard Movie Night What's going on everyone? I'm Drew And I'm Jared And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night The podcast where we put 20 movies up on a board Throw a dart at it and let the fates decide Tonight, we are covering one of the all-time, considered one of the all-time flops, uh, Heaven's Gate. How do you feel about it, Jared? How uh, Were you excited to watch this movie? What were your thoughts kind of going into this week? You know, it's it's interesting. I, I remember you mentioning, I think at the end of last week, and maybe when it first got on the board, that it was considered like a big failure. Um, and so I knew, I was expecting a movie that was going to be really ambitious, and it definitely was that. And I was expect I was already in my mind comparing it to other movies that are kind of known as failures and thinking if there's sort of a shared DNA amongst them. But um, I also was trying to kind of set that aside. It definitely crept in and it definitely I was aware of it in that history. But I didn't know a lot of the details before I watched the movie for the first time. I thought it was pretty fucking dope, man. I'm I'm excited to talk about this movie for sure. Yeah, it's a really it's a fascinating movie to to pick apart and just to to dig into its origins and um, it's one of those movies you can spend hours going down rabbit holes researching and and hearing the backstory of and um, mm. with good reason. I mean, like this is one of the most chaotic uh, movie sets of all time in turn not not in terms of the set itself but in terms of you know what the what transpired i mean this movie literally bankrupted a studio which is uh not a a, a thing that a lot of movies can say but i think you know wh- what we're responding to is that the money is on the screen in this movie and you know yeah. regardless of how this movie got made i I really dug it too. I I had so much fun watching this movie and I'm excited to dig dig into it. But before we do that, I kind of just want to touch on just, you know, movie flops and and failures in general. Like, Mm. you know, you kind of alluded to it a second ago. Like there are these movies in history where they're, they're called a failure. They're called a flop. They're, you know, they're talked about constantly for how crazy the stories of their origins are. But a lot of times you get these movies like Heaven's Gate where you come back to them years later and, you, you know, you give them, you watch them with fresh eyes and, and instead of watching them with the baggage of, I don't know, just the climate around these movies when they come out uh, is so yeah. toxic sometimes that it, it, it makes it so you can't appreciate them fully. And For sure. You know, there are these movies like this and, you know, ones that, that I kind of think of in the same kind of group would be stuff like Ishtar, the Elaine May movie with Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. It, that movie is fucking hilarious. Everyone should go watch that movie. It's one of my favorite comedies. Uh, Sorcerer, uh, the William Friedkin movie, which, you know, is is he just kind of went off into the jungle and, and had a psychotic oh, episode and made this crazy ass fucking movie. That's incredible. That movie. I mean, just quick aside, if anyone out there, a lot of people haven't seen it. I saw it for the first time like a year ago and I had never even heard of it. Sorcerer is incredible. That movie is awesome. And it's what, it's another one of those movies that just shocks me that it wasn't well received when it came out. The thing is another one. I mean, the yeah. thing eventually oh, found its home. 
but the thing was considered a flop and a disaster at the time. It's like that's a fucking great movie. The common trait among all three of those movies, Ishtar, Sorcerer, and The Thing, is that none of them made money at the box office. Um, but they're all, I I think in hindsight, getting uh, reappraised as as great movies, especially The Thing. I mean, that movie is looked at as a masterpiece. Yeah, um, I think our generation is is pretty, and and people behind us too. Like everyone considers that to be one of the great horror films of all time, mm-hmm. and one of the great. You could even argue sci-fi. Maybe it dips its toe in there for sure. But it's just an incredible, incredible movie that was hugely influential on a bunch of your and I favorite directors from kind of when we started coming online and watching movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that movie, like you're saying, has definitely is definitely recognized now. I guess the only difference with the thing is that that movie was less expensive. They didn't lose a whole lot of money on that movie, I don't think. That's true. Uh, whereas Ishtar and Sorcerer, those studios lost a ton of money on those movies. Yeah, yeah the thing didn't pull a studio down. Like if the thing didn't take down whoever made it Orion or whatever the fuck it was. Yeah, no, not at all. Eyes Wide Shut's another interesting example. Not in terms of the failure. I think that movie actually might have made a hundred million dollars, um, and it I, I, it went way over schedule. Not as much over budget necessarily. Um, I'm sure it went over budget quite a bit, but definitely not to the extremes that Heaven's Gate did. Uh, but anyway, just, you know, I, I find these movies so interesting because I think like, you know, Eyes Wide Shut's a perfect example of uh, something, another phenomenon that this movie was fighting against, which was just the the cultural wave of wanting to hate these movies. You know, there's yeah. like, I think there some every now and then a movie gets made and public the public just wants to hate this thing. For whatever reason, they've got it out for that director or that actor at the time. It, it's almost like it, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy where they're they're like, "Oh, this movie's go- like going way over budget. It's going to be terrible. We all know it's going to be terrible." And then it comes out, and it's like, "See, I told you it was terrible." When you know, it's it, it, that's not a fair assessment. You're coming in for with sure. that preloaded baggage. Yeah, and it's and you you mentioned it something similar to this earlier. We have the benefit of not being around any of that. You know, the movie we're really going to be focusing on tonight, Heaven's Gate, came out 40 years ago. So we are kind of free of a lot of this, quote unquote, what was happening at the time sort of baggage. But you're right. Like the culture can just get like just want to take something down for a variety of different reasons. And it's kind of sweet that uh, we can get some distance from it and just kind of watch it on its own terms and then explore the story behind it. We've got a lot of different kind of types of failures here. We have the commercial failures like The Thing. We have the quote-unquote production disaster failures like Eyes Wide Shut. And I would imagine Sorcerer was probably incredibly complicated too. Um, so, and, and this is considered a movie that like kind of covers all of those bases where it was like production nightmare, way over budget, way over its timeline project that was projected. And it failed, it flopped, you know, at the theater for a variety of interesting reasons that I'm sure we'll get to eventually. Um, and all of that stuff is fascinating in, in, in terms of Heaven's Gate, and we will certainly be exploring it. But I was really glad that when I first saw the movie, I did one watch and I did a, a speed rewatch because this is a tough movie to watch twice in one week. Um, I was happy that I kind of got to see it on its own two feet. And then afterwards, I explored the backstory of, of what had happened. And I feel like that was the right approach because I was able to just be like, wow, why was this thing so hated? You know, and it sounds like we both well, dug yeah. it and we'll get 
get into it. No, I mean, yeah. I think we can get into it now. I mean, what, like, mm-hmm. give me your overall thoughts. So, I mean, this is yeah. what you have. Uh, well, actually, let's let's start real quick. I mean, like, Michael Cimino is a film, and, and I, I do want to do a quick mea culpa. I, for sure, up until this point, was saying Michael Cimino on this podcast because that's the way that my brain read that when I was younger, and I've never, for whatever reason, never been able to get that pronunciation out of my head. But it's Michael Cimino. But this is his third movie. Um, I completely unknowingly put Thunderbolt and Lightfoot on on the list without knowing that this was one of his movies. Uh, but had you ever seen The Deer Hunter before, his second movie? So I have seen half of Deer Hunter. Okay. Um, and my dad is a huge fan of that movie. He, he introduced me to it. And it is it was great, but also kind of long. And I remember... I stalled out of it. I was watching it one night about around the time that De Niro, spoiler alert, I guess, for Deer Hunter, around the time that De Niro returns home and starts interacting with Meryl Streep and realizes he has to try to go back to get Chris. Like, that's where I was like, I'm okay, I'm taking a break. And I just never returned to it. And it's funny because I actually considered putting it on the board for that reason it's like i've never finished this movie i really enjoyed the first half but we can't have three chimino <laughs> flicks on it so maybe someday um but i was very aware of the russian roulette sequence when they're in the vietnamese prison sure like uh, the pow camp like that is an amazing amazing scene harrowing and so so well acted and so well shot everything about it is great and that's what really kind of popped for me. So that's that's my kind of association with Deer Hunter. Mm-hmm. I've never seen any of his other films that came out after Deer Hunter or after this. Well, um, for so. good reason. I mean, I think I think he never really was able to get his groove back again after this movie. It kind of broke yeah. him. You know, and it's I I I remain curious though to explore. Oh, I'm sure movies. I would be interested to watch. Them, yeah, but yeah, I don't think I'm going to put him on the board. I think I'll just check him out on my own. Yeah. But like, because like if this movie. Like a lot of the critics, even today, like Rotten Tomatoes critics, let's say, give this movie kind of a eh, yeah, it's pretty good. Some and some are really high on it. Some are really kind of meh on it. Um, but I really, I really liked it. And if and if his, if they respond to its other films like that, I'm very curious because maybe I'll like those too. I seem to kind of vibe with his style based on the the, the small sample size I have. Well, and I'm like, wait a minute, is this guy underrated? Because like. You know, he's not talked about in our generation, I don't feel, like as a great director. Well, I mean, he never really got a shot again. I mean, the, the studios yeah. really blacklisted him after this. Uh, I, mm. You know, I'm, he never got any budget of significance after this movie, for sure. Yeah. And um, I don't know that it, his presence is necessarily a great influence. I think he probably, like... Mm. Uh, I, I mean, I, it, by all accounts, like the people that worked for him loved working for him. So I don't I don't think he was a yeah. bad guy necessarily. Um, it sounded like he was difficult. But but I but. think I think he he does seem like a pretty reckless guy, like who who is yeah. pretty. I, I, you know, I don't want to defend like corporate uh, assholes, you know, trying to control artists. But there is a type of toxic artist that I, I think we can probably do without at this point. But. You know, that being said, like, again, like, it seems like everybody that worked for him has a ton of respect for him. And, you know, people like Bridges and, you know, they, they worked with him a lot. And, and yeah, um, yeah it, it's uh, it's sad to think about, like, what he potentially could have made after this if this hadn't been labeled as a failure before it had even failed. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
What's your relation to to Deer Hunter? You've seen so, that before, I assume. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I saw Deer Hunter in college. That was one of the movies that I really, really responded to starting when I was starting to get really like into getting into film history. This was one of the the movies that that really connected with me, and and I loved uh, all the performances and just the the you know I, I think I really just responded to like man this guy is fucking going for it like there's no he's not filtering his sensibilities through anything it's clearly like this filmmaker's point of view and um, I don't know I just respond to that I mean that it, it, I think that's that's a thing that's kind of an access point for love of film is like when you start to appreciate a filmmaker and you start seeing their like you know their fingerprints on on each of their works mm. and um not that again like that's the only one of his that I had seen uh, up until this point so I can't really say that I was tracking him as a filmmaker but you know you see when a movie is it, we've said this before like when a movie is made by a true filmmaker you feel that coming through the yeah. screen and and I felt that in that movie and I had a great time watching it and um, Heaven's Gate was one that I was aware of, but I was aware of as a failure. And so I'd never really watched it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had just kind of heard this movie brought up recently in, you know, film podcasts and film Twitter and like, you know, these things that I kind of consume in my downtime. And, you know, the reappraisal had already kind of been going on since the Criterion release back in like 2013, I want to say was when they first released it on Criterion. Nice. Were people speaking positively about it? Well, yeah, because Criterion had gotten Michael Cimino to come in and oversee the restoration and everything. And like it's, you know, it's basically him getting to make his version of the film the way he wanted to make it all along. And so, you know, the, the Criterion version of this is considered like the definitive Heaven's Gate. It's the three and a half hour cut. Um, It's, you know, full you know, eight minute dance sequences and 30 minute battle sequence. And, you know, it is bloated for (laughs) sure. For sure. Yeah. It's a very patient, big movie. Yeah. And we should say Drew and I both watched the same version. Yes. Which is the Criterion edition director's cut, which I think clocks in at about three hours and 40 minutes. And that was the original cut that was originally released to theaters. And we'll get into this story in a little bit. But if a listener checks this movie out on a streaming service, there is a good chance that you might get the second cut of the movie that came out and was released to theaters later, which is about two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. So Drew and I saw the same version. We're going to talk about that one. Also, the Criterion full, full cut. The original cut has a sepia tone to the, the look of it that is really just does not do a good service mm. to the, the visuals of this film because the greens and blues and, and you know, the mountains and everything in this movie on the Criterion version just pops like crazy. It's it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Dude, I completely agree. And in terms of like how we reacted to it, that is what stunned me the most about this movie. I hadn't reacted to the visuals of a film like this in a really long time. There are a couple of scenes in Catch-22 that I was like, holy shit, what a great shot that is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some in Seven Samurai in a very different way. And even some in Bad Day at Black Rock, which was kind of a Western also. And Um, it's not going for like stunning vistas in that movie necessarily, but it it has the just that backdrop that just gives the scenes this, this gravitas, you know. 
But I think this movie might blow him out of the water. Like oh, we were talking sure. about how we might do an end of the year wrap up and like there might be like a favorite shot. Before I would have said the catch twenty two smoky plane landing. When when like that shot was just and still to this day blows me away how amazing that shot is. There are like three or four shots in this movie that are so striking and stunningly gorgeous, and I've never seen anything like them. And I'm thinking like this was 1980. This isn't some like after effect like digital look they're applying to the film stock necessarily. Like they I don't know how. They're creating some of these images that were unlike anything I've ever seen before. It's it's because money is is how. Yeah. And they they yeah, because so money. so let's so let's kind of get into the making of this movie and we'll get back mm-hmm. to cinematography because I want to talk about the shots of this movie and but it yeah, all yeah. kind of ties into the making of this movie. So we need to right. we need to do a little bit it's of history. It's the elephant in the room. We need it's to do a little bit of room. history telling. So okay, so this yeah, movie yeah. was being produced by uh, United Artists. A little context on United Artists. So it was a studio that was founded by Charlie Chaplin, and they they were founded with the vision of like we're going to support artists, like we're going to to allow people the creative freedom to make their their art and do it with unflinching you know uh, uh, support, basically. Yeah. So that was the founding principle. The studio did really well for a while, then it got kind of kicked around, and it and it started getting. Uh, put into situations where it was being owned by corporate partners. Transamerica owned United Artists, and they wanted to support a filmmaker and have their kind of their trademark hit, their big Oscar winner, their their you know their tentpole uh, uh, movie. And this was around the time that The Deer Hunter was coming out. They saw an advanced copy of The Deer Hunter and uh, were like, Chimino's the guy. We need to support this guy. We need to give him whatever he needs to make his his next mm-hmm. ep. And also, like, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which is, as Drew mentioned, on the board currently, mm-hmm. and we'll get to it someday, also was modestly successful. Mm-hmm. You know, Clint Eastwood's in that movie, and pretty much unknown at the time. Jeff Bridges, I would imagine, mm-hmm. or, or certainly not. A he was coming. Well, Bridges. no, he was coming off an Oscar nomination for the Last Picture oh, Show shit. a couple years before that. Oh, okay. So, but but point being, like Chimino was not a one hit wonder. No, like he had a, a, a very successful debut film. He had a successful then, commercial career before that. Yeah, and then a towering achievement in Deer Hunter, which like like almost swept the Oscars, like. Well, and, and yeah, literally skyrocketed. Literally one week before they went into production on Heaven's Gate, he won Best Director, Best Picture. Uh, De Niro, I don't think De Niro won Best Actor, but Chris Walken won Best Supporting Actor for that movie. So, like yeah. that was that happened literally one week before this movie went into production. Uh, but they had been working on this for a little while up until that point. Um, they had, you know, basically they they knew that Deer Hunter was going to be a big hit, and they they banked on him. So. Mm-hmm. Um, all on paper makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So Chimino is obsessed with, uh, he's by his own words, barbed wire at this point. And he's investigating barbed wire as like the invention that tamed the American West, as he described it, which is really cool. And he comes across this story of the Johnson County war, which is a, not really a war. It's more of just a slaughter of, you know, where yeah, massacre kind of, yeah, where a state sanctioned government sanctioned, uh, assault on, uh, immigrants living in the Wyoming, the Casper, Wyoming area, um, were, uh, murdered for 
they claim for stealing cattle. Uh, it's disputed whether there was any actual theft of cattle or whatever. I don't remember the whole story, but basically he f- comes across this story and he's like, this would make for a great story. It's the only story he could think of, of um, the U.S. government sanctioning uh, the murder of U.S. citizens, basically. And yeah, like we're saying, a true story and truly like very fertile ground for a movie. Absolutely. They go in with the budget of, I think, $8 million. And I think it was scheduled for a 60-day shoot. Is that correct? And they went over by, I think, 200 days. I can't remember what the original uh, schedule was, but I knew it was some astronomical figure that they overshot. Like, it was like they were getting behind, like, every single day, and it was adding up and adding up and adding up. And they were getting something like, after, like, a million dollars in, like, a week, they had, like maybe a minute of usable film so they were just really inching along which isn't incredibly uncommon for how complicated film is and and making movies for to just inch along like that but it still was like they were saying like alarm bells were ringing about like the schedule and how they were going to go way over well at the in the end the budget ballooned from eight million to 45 million dollars so it's one of the the most. I, I believe at the time it was the most expensive movie ever made. Uh, it only grossed three point five million at the box office in the end, which is just uh, a colossal failure. It literally bankrupted United Artists, and uh, that's why you know we talk about it. You know, as as we do today. Um, that being said, the movie the 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 reasons for this failure are are a lot more complicated than that. Well. I just wanted to say, too, just to put it in context, obviously this came out in 79, 80 when the production started and when the movie came out. So according to this in fancy inflation calculator found on the internet, $45 million back then is the equi- equivalent of $176 million today. So like we, we're used to and, – and, and that's – I've heard that budget thrown around for modern-day movies, too. But it is pretty rare. That's, a, that's an expensive movie. And like – we have to. We have to. I think remember forty-five million dollars. Like nowadays, you hear that figure for movies commonly, and that's almost like I wouldn't say low budget, but that's not that's not shooting for the stars necessarily. But a hundred and seventy-six million is a is an, an astronomical amount of money, and especially for a studio the size of United Artists. Like we're not talking about a Warner Brothers or a, or, or a Universal. Like, this is, like, more of an artist studio. This is, like, me, like imagine, like... Like an A24. Uh, yeah, exactly. Imagine, like, an A24 or a Focus Features throwing, uh, you know, $175 million at a movie. That's the kind of thing Insane. we're talking about here. Yeah, and it's not a superhero movie. No. It's not, like you're saying, a blockbuster. We're, imagine if a studio put $175 mil into, like, a artsy... Academy Award nominee because that was the goal here. You know, they wanted, right. like you were saying, the tentpole. Well, they, they thought accolade film. The people on set thought they were making their version of Gone with the Wind, basically. Like the, it's yeah. like that kind of epic. You know, the American West epic, basically. Yeah, totally. Going back to what we were saying before, in terms of like, where did the budget go on this? It went to literally building an entire fucking town, interiors and all, for like to have the sets within, like. It went to Camp Chimino, which is like the the story of these actors, everybody, extras included, all all two thousand five hundred extras, 
on their downtime when they weren't working on set. They were going to what what the actors dubbed Camp Tremino, where they would go and learn how to basically be a homesteader from back in the day where you had to learn how to rustle up cattle and you had to learn how to roller skate with the the crazy clip-on roller skates that they wear in this movie. Ride horses, shoot bows and arrows, yeah. and shoot guns. They basically uh, just like, live this existence, you know? And yeah. um, it's, it's, it's wild to think that, you know, the reason this movie was going so long is because of the insane level of detail that went into this movie and Chimino was unflinching about it and I mean that was down to the level of like they would set up a shot and wait hours and hours and not shoot a single bit of film because they were waiting for the perfect lighting you don't hear of epic movies on this scale taking that time to do that shit these days but that's why this movie was getting delayed it wasn't because you know this the uh, cgi special effects were taking longer than expected or they were you know having trouble negotiating spider-man's deal so he could be in the the marvel universe or whatever you know like that was that's why we get delays nowadays it's like Back back then it was like no we 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 need to wait for the light to be right. Yeah, we gotta wait the, for the sun to come out. And and in our kind of research about this, and there's a, there's a ton of great like YouTube content out there. If anyone's interested about the backstory behind this film, there's a lot. Oh my out god, there about so it. much, and it's all. But all I would recommend seeing the movie first. Like I I definitely stand by mm-hmm. that. Um, but it doesn't sound like there was a lot of creative struggle. Like like he it sounded like. Chimino was a bit of a Fincher type where he would do a lot of takes and that was exhausting for the actors. But it didn't sound like the set was in like chaos. They weren't like partying. It wasn't like a mess in that way. It was just things were taking long because they were so, Chimino was so dedicated to getting it everything exactly right that it just took forever in one of the main uh youtube documentaries that the one that i texted you uh christopherson chris christopherson we'll link it in the show notes yeah absolutely it's a great video everyone should watch it who watches this movie but they interview a lot of the actors and and people involved in the production and chris christopherson who plays james averill in the movie jim he is interviewed in this documentary and he says that uh he's like you know, they, they were talking about this movie as this failure. And he's like, when we were on set, we, we were, didn't think about like, we, we didn't think we were making a bad movie. We thought we were making a great movie. Like, he was like, yeah. like, we were just convinced we were just making something awesome. And like, that's why it was taking so long. And like that we were doing this. It's like, you yeah. know, it, like to, I think to a lot of the, the more creative types, nothing felt wrong about what was going on with this movie, except that, yeah. uh, you know, it was going longer than expected, but you know, uh, and it was grueling, you know. Yeah, it, these it also, definitely, it definitely you know, sounded exhausting, and you know, for sure. some of the people seemed shooting, more frustrated by it than others. Yeah, they're shooting in all these exotic locations that take a ton of time and energy and effort to get people to every day, and all of these things are just stacking up to make this movie just uh, huge and bloated in terms of financially. And I will say. I really think, for the most part, artistically, they pulled it off. Oh my god! It's this movie is is pretty stunning and pretty pretty sweet. I think. Yeah. No. I mean this this movie is really great. Uh, I I'm going to be coming back to this movie quite a bit. I would imagine. I think so too. Yeah. I mean, it is a sad movie though. <laughs> it is fucking depressing. It's super. It's super super sad, and but I think it's got some interesting things to say. About the nation and like the nature of humanity in general mm-hmm. and like and the influence on money and things like this and, and human interaction. But I will say just to circle back briefly to the detail thing, 
I think it really was worth it. And I know it's easy for me to say I didn't have any money on the line and all this stuff. But it's going to sound cheesy, but it literally felt like a lot of these shots was like an old time photograph came to life from from the period. Mm-hmm. Like specifically, I'm thinking of after the train initially arrives and we see the town for the first time that they built this full functioning town in this amazing location. Like literally I've seen photos that look like that of like a bustling town that's real and it looked exactly like it. And it's like, that might've been worth it. But also it looks incredible. The immersion of, of those environments that he creates. Like I, in that exact scene you're talking about, I was blown away by just the sound design and the, the mm-hmm. chaos of, of all the buggies and the dirt and the, you know, the, uh, people trying to yell over the the din and you know it's just like man it, it feels like you're there yeah yeah it's it, yeah. it's very uh it's just impressive how immersive that feels and like it's almost like the words that people are saying in this movie and i kind of got a vibe for this even in the prologue where it's like you're they're speaking in this kind of poetic language that you is kind of hard to decipher a lot of the time in, in yeah. those early scenes um, specifically like John Hurt's speech is just like, I don't, I have no idea what he was saying in that entire speech, but it's more about Same the here. mood. It's like, it's, it's all like, it's, it's almost like the words they're saying intentionally don't make any sense because you're not supposed to make sense of them. You're just supposed to kind of be enveloped by this world and you get yeah. all the, the cues you need from body language and the way characters interact with each other and, and the, the tone and the, the mood of things. Um, I don't know. I, yeah. I really, I really was swept up in that. And, and I think if you carry that forward and you, you don't just like look for continuity and you don't look for kind of like, like concrete, it, it, I don't know. Does that make any sense? That makes, that makes complete sense because there were times where I was in the first viewing, I was taking my notes and shit and I was thinking, I think this dialogue is, is trying to be confusing. Like there were, there were sound editing choices that they were making. Like you're saying on the arrival to the town where it's just a lot of noise and it's hard to hear what's being said, but even subtle choices of like uh, when we meet the Jeff Bridges character in the cockfighting scene and he comes over and starts talking to Chris Christopherson, the James Jim guy, they're at the bar. James Jim guy. James Jim. <laughs> um, but yeah, talking to Chris Christopherson, yeah. Jim, like there are little sound editing choices that are made in the scene where like when an actor says a line, there's a sound effect that kind of st- steps on it a little bit like a bottle hits against the bar or 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 whatever like jeff bridges is tinkering tinkering with makes a noise and it's like they didn't have to do that they made the 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 decision to have that sound effect kind of step on the line a little bit and there was a lot of stuff like that in the movie so it kind of got me thinking like why are they trying to make things hard to hear like i get it in like the city scenes because they're trying to show the chaos but I think it might be something kind of along the lines of what you're saying, where they're just kind of bringing you into the world and maybe they're wanting you to, 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 to pick up on things from things like the body language and the other things you were mentioning. That might be one of the reasons, potentially. I, You know, it just, I'm starting to piece it all together. Like, I'm thinking, like, 
they don't ever give you subtitles for any of the foreign languages spoken in the movie. Yeah. They don't. Um, I tried to find a subtitle menu on here and I couldn't find one. I don't know if they even offer subtitles on the Criterion disc, which almost feels intentional. You know, that must be intentional. That must. I, be. I'm watching. I'll, because... I'll clarify. I watch my Blu-rays on a PS4 and I kind of have trouble with the controls for some reason. Like they have these weird control setups where like the the. O button is actually the play pause instead of the X button. It's it's fucking stupid. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. But so I'm I'm I may just have not been able to find the menu, but I didn't see a subtitle menu anywhere on it. Well, I think and specifically thinking of that arrival scene where we have the person, I don't know if you'd call him a conductor, whoever's managing the station, that guy mm-hmm. who has the, the really guy, thick yeah. Irish Irish accent. Like I could not understand what he was saying. That's when I was and trying to I, turn it on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think you're I think that's all on purpose. It's like you're not. This is what it would be like. You wouldn't be able to really hear them. Like you'd have a hard time with the accent potentially. Like that's what it would be like to be there. You'd have to kind of piece together what this person is saying. Yeah. And that might be kind of part of the experience that they wanted to kind of bring you know. into. It's like, does it doesn't really matter if you hear every word this person is shouting over the sound of the engine arriving. It all feels purposeful, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and again, like even in in smaller, quieter scenes, it seems like they're fucking around with it. So again, I think it's all something they were, and we could guess till the cows come home about like the reasons for it, and it's fun to do. But it all we know is it definitely was on purpose. Like it definitely was. Yeah, I heard it said. I think it was Chimino who said this, and he was quoting John Ford, um, and he and John Ford said, "There are three things that the movie camera is perfect at capturing: It's like a horse running, a couple dancing." And a, and a good mountain. And Chimino was saying, we tried to get all of these things in this movie, and I think they did. But the one I kind of wanted to hit on, and we touched on it a bit earlier, was the mountain vista shots in this movie are unreal. And I think the best I've ever seen. Yeah. I've seen a ton of Westerns. You know, movies like, I'm a huge fan of The Hateful Eight, and I know that a lot of that movie takes place in a confined space, but there are incredible Vista shots included in that film. And that's shot on 70 mil as well. And and it is a key pillar of Westerns is Vista shots that give you a sense of the mm-hmm. scale. But I've never seen shots that look this good in my life in terms of mountains and things. And it's just really shocking and commendable. And there were, there were several times I was just saying aloud, pretty much watching the movie by myself, like, oh my yeah. God. Like that is an incredible right shot. from the get go from the get go and even small shots too. I have a certain look to them that are like that's just gorgeous. Well, it's like he chooses to like have his shot of the the you know the plight of the workers you know the farmers pushing the plow through the field with a giant fucking you know snow cap peak you know behind them so and like beautiful. you're just like okay that's incredible yeah. like yeah it's like. Never seen that in a movie but, before. I mean, just imagine him waiting it out to get exactly the lighting he wants on those mountains and like the perfect kind of, you know, time of day. I don't know. It's like he, it must have been so exacting to get all of that shit. Yeah. Think of that. Another scene that in terms of the look of it, I was just like, oh, my God, is that terrifying scene where the Irish uh, train station attendant That's gets murdered the one, yeah. and, and gets gunned down. And when that first when that first bounty hunter. Mm-hmm approaches him when he's with sleeping. With the trench coat. With the trench coat. The wind is whipping. The, the valley and the mountains behind him are jaw-dropping. Yeah. 
And I've just like, I've never seen a shot of mountains look that good in my life. We should life. mention the cinematography here. Uh, the director of photography on this movie was Vilos Zygmunt. Uh, he's an incredible, incredible cinematographer. He's, you know, multiple Academy Award nominated. Won, uh, he won the Academy Award uh, once for uh, Close Encounters, actually. Mm. But uh, yeah, he's, he's an all-time great cinematographer. He also shot The Deer Hunter. Um, but anyway, that shot that you're hi- highlighting is w- officially one of my favorite shots of all time. And it's a long take, man, because it starts there with him sleeping under that tree thing. Then the guy with the trench coat ap- approaches. And that's my favorite part of the shot is his trench coat flapping in the wind with that vista behind him. You know, just the, yeah. that composition, I want... I want it on my wall, literally. Like I, I'm considering yeah. trying to figure out how to get a high resolution print of that and just get it on my wall. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to see that. Or maybe like one of those like artistic renditions that's like a painted Ooh, version of it would be kind of cool. Dope. You know what I mean? Um, how they do that. But I, I just I just want that that thing. I want it behind my damn bed. Yeah. But anyway, that shot continues. That's a long take. Cause then you have, you know where the horses like come up the hill like around him yeah the arrival above and, and, him and it yeah. actually pans to the left i think and follows him run up the hill when all the the horses crest that hill too and like dude yeah it's incredible it's one of the best shots i've ever seen and talk about the whole camp chimino thing playing dividends when that primary one who who really guns him down he rides out on his horse and fires from horseback it looks so legit well that's the guy the who guy, trained the, him actually Oh, oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, That's he's really a cool. Guy. But it's like, holy fuck. Like that everyone who's riding a horse in this movie looks like they've been doing it for their mm-hmm. whole life. Well, Jeff Bridges in the in the war scenes at the end of it, which we you know, I want to talk about the war scenes a bit too, but like that I mean, the Yeah, that you're right. Like everyone sells that they're a part of this yeah. world. They seem like they've been doing it since they were five 100%. years old. And, and it, it adds to the authenticity. And I understand that that's kind of like, you know, when it, when a director says that they're obsessed with the details, people can kind of roll their eyes, but it does add up and it matters. And I think this movie really kind of proves it in yeah. some way that the details matter. But speaking more about that shot, we're talking about the one of the execution, like that, the scene is also terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, like this person is just being hunted down and gunned down and the first taste of how horrific this movie gets. Yeah. And the way that like the first is firing from horseback, the, that the, the, the horse that's doing the, the, the chasing is like streaking across this mountain with the sky above it. The clouds just look out of this world. Good. And then it's followed up with an incredible stunt where the horse gets shot out from under him and he gets thrown I don't know how the horse didn't get injured, and I guess there was reports yeah. of a lot of. <laughs> I didn't really want to talk issues. about it because it's really depressing. But there are some uh, accusations yeah. of uh, animal misconduct on this set. Well, they did straight up film a cockfight, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. But still, say what you will about the the consequences of it. That that stunt's pretty incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Like the guy being thrown from the horse and rolling, and then he just gets murdered. And it's just a terrifying scene, but so strikingly beautiful at the same time. It's a really strange reaction when I when I mm-hmm. saw it. I was like, "This is like stunningly gorgeous, but terrifying." Yep. I don't know. It was it was interesting. What well, did you I think? feel that way about all the the horrific shit in this movie. Like he photographs it in a way yeah. where it's just like, 
it, it's gorgeous and and you're just like you can't take your eyes off it but it is like it's terrifying i, I mean you know yeah. like i'm thinking of like christopher walken's death scene in this movie i mean that whole that whole oh, sequence God. leading up to it of just like them like you know just mercilessly gunning the first guy down like as soon as he comes out the door and then like you know just firing on on the the cabin relentlessly and then you know sending the battering ram with that on fire like onto the thing like to burn him out and like crazy then just like the amount of squibs like it's like a james con and the godfather level of squibs on him exactly, like going exactly dude it was a sunny corleone spoiler alert <laughs> but it was a sunny corleone death scene going and and the way it looks when he, when Walken is getting shot up and he's going down, the fire is roaring behind mm-hmm. him. It's just an it's an incredible it really shot, is. and the movie is just stuffed with these shots from pedestrian to the Vista one. So we've obviously mentioned those, but I was thinking too, there are shots in the movie like do you remember the first time uh, Christopher Walken's character Nate kind of comes back to town and has that conversation with Ella. And then he goes and see Jim, kind of like the main character, passed out drunk in the bed. And they, they, him and Jeff, Christopher Walken and Jeff Bridges bring Jim to his bed in this other place. And it's a pretty simple, in terms of idea shot, where they open the door to his room and there's like beams of light like coming from the other room behind them. And it just makes these amazing, with the shape of their hats and the shape of their bodies and what they're doing, kind of dragging the drunk guy into his bed. But the light beams just looked incredible. And the movie has so much shit like that where I'm like, that's a gorgeous shot. That's crazy. And it's just like inside. No, it's like it's shot. not even it, – it's it's so, so beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever 100%. seen. I really got to yeah, say. No question. I just wanted to say too, I heard that anecdote in that doc you sent me about um, – I think it was the, the cinematographer told this story about how Chimino would work with the background extras. And he was so detailed – that he was painting a picture with people. So he would pull, like he would get all the extras like kind of lined up and he would select them specifically and where they would be in the frame and just kind of paint it in that way. And he was so, again, meticulous is the word we keep returning to, but these shots are just so smoking that it's like, they, they he's really good at this. They're immaculate. I don't think this movie does not get enough credit for how many gorgeous gorgeous shots Dude, are his it's use a, of a such a his use of movie. a crane shot in a crowd scene when he's like swooping into these big you know giant rooms with hundreds of people in them like even in the prologue man that first shot where the the graduates are arriving in that rotunda oh with all God, the people so in cool. it with the hundreds and hundreds of extras um it's it's so so cool to watch uh the way that he yeah. works with the with that kind of scale um you know you see it in in the heaven's gate you know the the you know whatever the the dance hall kind of area where they're grouping like he'll do these big camera shots where he starts low with with a couple of characters and then swoops up and you see just this this you know room filled with people kind of open up to you as as he pulls forward oh, and it's, it's really it's, cool yeah i mean think too of that like in the Harvard prequel, like the dancing yeah. that's going on outside and that sh- beautiful shot that tracks across these hundreds of dancers just twirling. And it's like, oh my God, so complicated. Looks amazing. And the first shot of the movie, like the steeple of the church and the slow pan down to this archway that Chris Christopherson runs through to make it to the graduation. And there's like this soft glow 
on the patch of the gate that he runs through. It's just like beautiful shots oh. everywhere in this fucking movie. Yeah, dude. it's so so crazy. Another scene too, and we'll we'll probably shortly after this dive into the performances in general. But that scene where the cattle group, the association, I think they're known as mm-hmm. in the movie, is casting that vote. Mm-hmm. And John Hurd is very kind of dejected and walking away. Something about him walking through that entry parlor, he steals the cigar from the person who's passed out. He kind of winds his way up the stairs and starts smoking. That shot is so beautiful. And I don't know what they're doing with the lighting in there. But then that cuts to the next shot, which is, I think, my favorite mirror fake out of all time. So John Hurt is kind of like staggering up the stairs. His old college buddy, Jim, is like playing pool and he's like recognizing, holy shit, he's here. And he's like staggering drunk up the stairs. And then all of a sudden they they pull the wool over your eyes and you realize it was a mirror. And I had never been so fooled by a mirror shot in my life. It was so cool. But again, the movie is just like breathtaking with everything it does. And even some of those like date sequences between Jim and Ella when he gives her the buggy and Mm -hmm. they're like on the river, like picnic it's just like, that just looks so, like, what a day. <laughs> you, I'm totally lost in the fantasy of the scene. Yeah. It, it, I'm like, I'm sitting there watching. It's like, that just seems like a wonderful day. You've got this beautiful lady, you know, like, kind of skinny dipping. you got a picnic going on, this amazing environment. Like, what what a day. I think, I think Chimino seems to me like he's a very, he's a director that wants to convey experience a lot in his films. He does it in the deer hunter too. I mean, like the beginning of the deer hunter, there's like a 45 fucking minute sequence just of, of like a wedding in the hometown. Like, like (laughs) I don't think it's actually that long. I think I'm exaggerating, but it's, it's an interminably long scene of just a wedding and just the wedding festivities, basically like very little happens, Yeah, but he's like, he's putting you in that experience and like, you know, he's, he's, you know, letting you immerse with those characters for a while. And, and, you know, I think, I think about like the specifically like the roller skate scene in this movie, which is like a solid eight to 10 minutes of them just like rolling around this room to music and like dancing and like, you know, having fun. It's, it's like really fun to watch. Um, but nothing really much happens, but I, I think about Mm -hmm. that. And then you think about how, devastatingly sad the end of this movie is for all of those characters and you know would you you know because this movie doesn't take its time to like introduce you to all of those people but you kind of get um, you get introduced to the community through those scenes and like and you feel the the sadness of that whole community when that is just destroyed by these you know people who you know are just greedy assholes yeah yeah I, I definitely agree. And I think, too, another, like another one of the scenes, kind of like you're saying, it builds the community. Do you remember the, the scene right after Jeff Bridges and Chris Christopherson meet, meet up at the bar and those two kind of local immigrant people are getting in an argument about like some guy and his wife and they're like spitting at each other and they're fighting? Mm-hmm. It's like that's a scene. It's like, yeah, you could cut that. You probably don't need it. It doesn't really do anything to the story. But again, I think I really do think this movie isn't, isn't as concerned about the story. I don't mean that as a slight. It's more concerned about building a world feeling. for yeah. us to experience. Yeah. And I think you said it. You said experience, experiential filmmaker, if I'm not, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. I think you're spot on. He's going for a world and a vibe 
that he wants to to bring you to and also tell you this fascinating story about uh you know greed and I wouldn't even say betrayal but it's just cool it's cool and I'm I'm kind of surprised that it was so hated at the time I think this is a fucking cool movie yeah, man Yeah it's great I love it Yeah well, let's dig in a little bit to the actors here. I mean, what did you think? Have you ever seen a Chris Christopherson-led film before? Do you Have you ever seen him? Great question. Never seen him lead in a film. It was dogging me for a while. I was doing one of those things. It was like, where have I seen that face? Arguably the worst name of any actor. It's just like, it seems like a fake name, you know what I mean? But I don't think it is. But it's like so gummy. It's like, ah, oh, Chris. Well, he's a country name, music man. star first. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, I was thinking of like Blade. Blade is what I knew him from. It was haunting me for a little while, and I was like, "I know that face." I was he was older, but I know the face. And then I was like, "It's fucking Blade." I thought he was solid. I thought he was really good. Christopherson's weird for me. So, if I had any major complaint of this movie, I feel like that character could have been played by an actor that carries a little bit more weight in terms of just, I don't know, Christofferson to me doesn't totally work in this role. I, I don't know what it is, uh, for me anyway. I, I felt like someone like Robert Redford would have knocked that part out of the park, I feel like. And yeah. I just feel like he's a little bland in this movie, whereas every other performer is like electric. I think I agree. I could I could envision a world where other choices would be better. Um, like imagine like Jack Nicholson in this role. Oh, that would have been crazy. You can't have Jack and and walking in the same know, scene. I don't right. think the frame would contain it. It would just explode. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I get what you're saying. It, it it wasn't a wow performance for me, but I thought it was solid. And he had one moment that I like had to rewind and just love. Which one? And that's when uh, the Cattle Associate played by what? Sam mm-hmm. Waterston? Is that who yeah. played him? I didn't recognize him, by the way, because I've only seen him as an older Law person. Law and Order, all time. Um, uh, yeah, just he's, he's been there for decades. But also, we'll get to him, but really good in this yeah, role, I thought. Yeah, I loved him. But anyway, he's he's giving Chris Christopherson shit after they just voted. And Christopherson just had that pool table conversation with John Hurt and is a great, I love yeah. that scene. But he comes down and they have that it kind of is like try to kick him out. He's like, you're, you could be shot for trespassing. And then, and then uh, he's like, this is your own class of people. And he's like, I'm not in your class. And then the guy slaps him and he just returns yeah. slaps like the best slap I've ever seen. And it's so yeah. funny. Like I was like, literally knocks up. him out with it. Yeah, just gives him like just the it was great. And the other guy starts it. The other guy does the first slap like with his dueling gloves yeah. or whatever. And Christopherson just pinwheels down, like it's open great. hand, and just knocks him back. It's such a great. Moment. I thought I was gonna love and, him based on that, and then I just kind of cooled on him over the movie. I think like yeah. his scenes with Isabel Isabel Hubert don't ever really work for me. Like in terms of like buying their connection, I think she's brilliant in this movie. Um, I like her too. I yeah. think I think she knocks it out of the park, and it it kind of baffled me in that dude. He had to fight. I know for her. it baffles me that they had he, to, to fight for. Chimino had to fight. And for it's that like, casting. And, and it's so funny because you know, going back to that documentary, they mention in that that the studio execs were like, "We can't understand her with the accent. Like, we're not going to sign off on her." And Chimino is like, "No, she's still the she's still the girl." And that was like a big point of contention. And I was just like, and and the the one studio exec literally says like. Well, I don't buy it. She like has a French accent and she's in the American West. And it's like, dude, you're telling a story about immigrants. Dude, 
are you insane? Yeah, and it's like when they made that point in the doc, I was right there with you. I was like, it's like, we won't be able to understand her. He's like, that's the point. Yeah. She has a thick accent. You don't have to understand yeah. her. That's She's what surrounded like. by and people who so like don't even speak the language. Yeah, and he's like, you know, she doesn't speak English that well. You mean like the character? Like, what are you what talking, are we talking about? about here? Yeah, like, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah, so I heard that and I was like, okay, you know what? Well, say what you will about Jamino. But he might have been in the right of being like, fuck these people. They don't know what they're talking about. These young executives were trying to contain my vision and say, like, can't hire this French actress to play this French person because she doesn't speak clean English. It's ridiculous. It's like, get the fuck out. I would be so, so furious. Stupid. And also, we've mentioned it, of course, but think of, think of like, it's easy to hear this story of the behind-the-scenes disaster, blah, 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 and make... Chimino seemed kind of like an egomaniac and like a bit of a control freak and a crazy person. You got to think of if put yourself in those shoes. You just had two successful movies. You just won Best Picture, you know, doing all this stuff. You've been green light to make this big movie, and yeah, it's going way over. But people are going to have such a anybody would have a huge ego in that situation. You just cleaned house at the well, Oscars. Also- You're trying to make something amazing. And these people are just trying, seem like they're dragging you down. Everyone's probably going to react similar to how he did. Well, you also got to believe he has an immense amount of pressure on his shoulders, too, as like, what is the follow up to fucking Deer Hunter, you know? Like, exactly. You know, like, I I know that, like, it definitely doesn't excuse any sort of toxic behavior that that may have occurred in terms of like the arguments of like the verbal altercations he had with like the execs and everything like i'm sure that like some of that probably crossed lines but at the same time like this guy's got a lot on his shoulders too in terms of like anything that follows up the movie that cleans up at the at the oscars that way is bound to feel like a disappointment and he's fighting against that up you know that current so yeah it's 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 yeah. it's an interesting kind of standoff there so we've touched on christopherson hubert uh christopher walken what you know awesome ha- this is an early walken is this the earliest you've seen of a, a walken performance other than the half of the deer hunter oh other than the half of the deer hunter i think that was because this is early in his career too What's Annie Hall? He's in Annie Hall briefly. Very, that might have very come briefly. I don't even know if he had. Does he have uh, a line in that movie? I had seen him. Yeah, he does. He has some great lines in that movie. He's like this tortured dark oh, soul right. that, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. he's driving in the rain, talking about like how he pictures driving off the road and nervous, pervous Woody Allen's next to him, like stressing out. Um, so that, but I had seen Young Walken before, and it's always so cool every time it happens to see these older actors that we got introduced to later in life. Like I'm sure I got to walk in through Pulp Fiction and things like that. So that's when I picture Christopher Walken, I generally picture the movies that I initially saw and how he looked in them. It's always so fun to go back and see younger performances. We had a similar, I had a similar reaction to seeing young Alan Arkin in Catch-22 because mm-hmm. I, I picture him as an old man. I, I liked the performance a lot. Did they have something going on with his eyes? It looked like he was wearing like mascara or eye makeup, or is that just naturally? He just has those kind of piercing eyes back then, Like man. kind of dusky. Yeah, I mean, if you watch The Deer Hunter, I mean, that's a pivotal part of his performance is those piercing eyes and like just like the emptiness yeah. of them when he gets towards the end of that movie. I won't spoil kind of like yeah. where his character goes, but I mean, it gets dark. He was known for that a little bit. I mean, even like... I'm thinking of him playing Max Zorin in A View to a Kill, which is one of my favorite campy Bond movies from from the 80s. Uh, it's 
it's Roger Moore's last Bond movie, and he's like sixty five years old. He like is like literally a geriatric at this point. And uh, uh, Walken plays the villain. It's nineteen eighty five, so it's a few years after this movie. But um, yeah, same deal. He kind of has that that look a little bit to him. I I, I think that's just him, but I don't know. It could be could also yeah. be makeup, you know. Yeah, I couldn't tell, and and I think I had the question on review that I wanted to like bounce off mm-hmm. of you do we buy him as a cowboy well he's not a cowboy though well he's kind of like an enforcer so he's like a he's like a law he's like a a justice dispenser yeah. for the cattle company exactly uh but like do we buy christopher walken in this environment with that with that very specific way that he has of talking i think i do I, but it I, didn't I, I did me. wrestle with it a it little didn't bit. bother me didn't no. bother you I liked, I guess in the, at the end of the day, I liked seeing him in this environment because he, in my mind, is so connected to New York and he has such a specific rhythm and way of speaking to see him in like the late 1800s in Wyoming being like a cattle person. I, I don't even know how to describe his role necessarily was just pretty cool. But I, I did have the questions like, am I buying? I'm, I'm, I'm definitely recognizing that this is walking. I wouldn't say he's disappearing into the leaves of the performance necessarily, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And it was cool. Cool. Seeing him young dope mustache. He had a great look in this movie. I think a little bit of his character kind of plays into that, you know, incongruity of those two, you know, the, the place and the person, right? So like his character, that's true. His character is a guy who is kind of playing at being, the dandy rich boy who works for the rich guys, you know, but really he's, he's poor. He's not, he doesn't have status. He's not a, um, he's not a part of that group. He's just doling out their, oh. their violence, you know? So you're saying his out of placeness is really, yeah. Fitting. Yeah. He's supposed to yeah. kind of look like a guy, like, like you see his cabin, you know, when, when him and Isabella Hubert go there after he, he proposes to her and very humble and he's, she you can tell from from her reaction that it's like this is not what she expected of who he is because he puts on a different persona you know in in what he does um and i think he's a he yeah so he's a he's supposed to be a fish out of water a little bit that makes a ton of sense and conversely i had a i had a difficult time with christopherson he didn't seem like a rich guy. Interesting. Yeah. Like it was referenced. Constantly I, I buy in the it in the prologue with the shave, but as soon as yeah. he gets the scruff, it's like he disappears into, but, but I think that's supposed to kind of communicate years of wear and tear, you know? Yeah. That's part of it. And I think again, it's like, maybe the movie's trying to say something like class does not necessarily define someone. I think it's like, well, uh, because look, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, right? Cause like walking is low class trying to be upper class and, and Christopherson is upper class rolling around in the muck with the lower class, you know? Totally. So it's totally. like, it, it, yeah. That one person has that great line to him too, where he's like, one of the reasons I hate you is because you're a rich person from a good family who pretends to be, be right. poor. And you can see that it cuts him pretty Absolutely. deep. Well, and, but I think he is trying to do things righteously, you know, Christoph. Absolutely. No, I think he's a good right guy and people. like he's there for the right reasons and he sees who the real good guys and bad guys are in all of this. 
And, um, I mean, but, but just like going back to kind of like, you know, I, they do such a good job of communicating things visually and through costume and, and through design, because look at like him in the last scene in the movie, he's on that boat, he's in the first class, he's back to his, his status, he's back in his world, but he hates it. That's not where he belongs. And he's, he looks uncomfortable with his shaved face and his like buttoned up, you know, outfit. He's not, that's not his element. That's not who he is. Dude, that was so effective. Like, when they showed that, it's like this just looks like a nightmare, and you could tell he just want he just wants to be back, where in the West, where with Ella and like all this stuff, and like it's it's just kind of heartbreaking. He like he could not escape his class roots. He gets sucked back to them, and that was the woman from the prologue, right? Yes. The woman that he's kind of shading, cherry trading glances mm-hmm. with. So it's like. He he got to go and for however many years pretend to just be a lower class citizen and and he really loved it and then he just got taken away from him even though it ended tragically and very well sad. and I think you could tell it was much more rich and fulfilling than sitting on a yacht with this person lighting her cigarettes and just being like oh my well gosh, and fantasy or not terrible. it's kind of playing into the American myth of like the frontier and like Definitely. of like you know yeah. uh, we're uncomfortable when we're shackled by our you know uh, our status in the world or or like the, at least when we're talking about the myth of like the American you know frontier and, and everything it's like that's that's yeah. him you know it, he's embodying that where it's like he yeah. he only feels uh, himself when he's at his most free and out in the wilderness kind of like pursuing that that side of himself but yeah overall I thought walking was cool I loved seeing young walking. Did you recognize that it was him in the beginning of the movie who shot that mm-hmm. cattle person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so I didn't catch Which that the I think first time. We, I had to we see it a second glossed time. over it, but I mean that's one of my favorite. That that whole sequence kind of showed me what this movie was going to be. Um, I think that kind of like sets the tone for the rest of the viewing because uh, you've got the incredible Vista, you know, he's doing these crazy camera, you know, dolly moves where he's showing the Vista and the the sets and he's, he's showing the money on the screen already. And then he like, I love the shot of like through the shotgun hole of, you know, with the mountains behind him and like, ah, it's just, and the shadow before the shot happens, like just seeing walking shadow cast over the sheet and the gun comes up slowly. It's so cinematic. It's It's terrifying and so cool. And yeah, the whole, and then we briefly see Walken's face. And then he has that weird thing. The character is pretty complicated because after that, he he rides away and he goes, rides by that column of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And he says something like, go back to where you came from. So he, like, he starts off by having this sort of, we're introduced to, to a cold-blooded murder. We don't know the story yet that he's like this enforcer. I, again, didn't catch that until second viewing. It's like, oh, these people stole that cow they were gutting. Mm-hmm for food and he was you know dispensing the law mm-hmm. you know in some way but first viewing I'm a little lost about mm-hmm. all that and he says that thing of like go back to where you came from as he rides away from the column of immigrants but his his view of immigrants is more complicated than that like we see later in the movie when he threatens to shoot that person who's about to steal the cow and uh, he's like you look like one of us and all this stuff and he but he I don't know. He's a complicated character. Yeah. I really like him. Like he's like, he's he's not cut and dry. He's he's a bit of a Western trope in a way. This sort of like troubled character. But it was really nice seeing this opposite of Chris Christopherson, who is a little bit more like 
I don't want to say Bible thumpery, but I think you well, know what I mean. He's, like, he's righteous. Chris, he's got that that. Yeah, Chris Christopherson is righteous. Yes, he's exactly. got that righteous. And, you know, but he knows like that what he believes in is true, and like it's a little yeah. bit harder to love than like a, a more conflicted character who it's like oh, I want you to figure this out. I want you to be better. You know. Yeah. Um, and and I like I do really love that scene where they're kind of jousting over breakfast, yeah. like the first time they really talk and like. He comes in and he says about where he stretch your legs out of my. Um, no, 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 no. Uh, that happens oh. a little later. It's like uh, it's our it's their first on screen conversation. Jeff Bridges is like kind of goes behind and gets the gun, and Walken sits down at that breakfast table. And it's just kind of cool just to see these two people spar who have very different rhythms both in terms of the character and the actors who are portraying them and it's just kind of a a really cool that's a great point i love the juxtaposition of the two and and actually i mean that's that makes me like the christopherson performance more because when you put it in contrast to to what walken does it's it's um yeah it's interesting yeah yeah walken both in character and performance is so unpredictable Mm -hmm. like you don't know you don't really know what's going on behind those eyes you don't know what he's in it for all the time and um and he kind of ends up winning in the end, in a way, because he was the one that that Ella chose. You know? Well, he also gets um, gunned down mercilessly. Yeah, but that might be a better way to go than being trapped on a yacht, lighting some <laughs> rich lady's cigarettes. Well. But anyway, walking, I think I've fully come around. I think he's dope, and just like seeing. You know, him it's interesting. Like, like you say, you're coming around on walking because, like, as we're talking about walking, I'm coming around on Christofferson too. That's because cool, I think it's like, yeah. as we're talking about it, I'm I'm loving this movie more the more we talk about it. Because, and I think that happens yeah. every now and then with these kind of conversations. Is like the more Definitely. we dig into it and we hear what each other is like appreciating about it, we're starting to piece things together we hadn't thought about before. And this is one of those things where I'm like, man, I, I yeah, I do love the juxtaposition of those two characters yeah 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 well Absolutely. let's um let's kind of run through a few of the other kind of side characters here just real quick because yeah. i mean this movie is filled with great character actors um you mentioned sam waterston a little bit earlier I, I let's highlight him real quick i mean obviously you know law and order alum guy you know has been a tv legend but you know he got his movie career started in, you know around this time and was he's always been kind of like a good guy he's been kind of like a paragon of of you know morality and yes. most of the things that he's in um so it's interesting seeing him be like like the exact opposite of that, this evil character. I mean, oh, dude, when he, such a the way he shoots you that, that, that immigrant that's chained to the train at one point. To the wheel, to the wagon it, wheel. It, devastating. Oh, dude, it's, and, and it's just, you just hate him. You hate him. And, and Christopher Walken has that great line where he's like, you ever killed anyone yourself? And it's just like, because he just sees right through this guy. This is just a upper class, high and mighty person who's ordering the deaths of people, but has never gotten his hands. That's coming right on the heels of another scene that we forgot to mention about Chris Walken. But when he walks into the tent and shoots that guy in the head is so fucking good. Blows him away. So cool. And I I had to see the scene a second time to hear him be like, who gave the order? He asked that guy outside of the tent, like one of a random person there. And that's who he blows away, which is just, yeah, he's like, he's I'm not coming in to kill everybody. I'm killing, coming to kill you. Yeah, 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 and then and then uh, Sam Waterston has that like not here, like he's not even upset, yeah. really, that this person just got shot like right behind him. He's such a he's fucking a asshole. Not, life means nothing yeah. to him, um, and it's just, but it's a great no, performance. I I really loved that scene 
where he's first hiring the mercenaries. Mm-hmm. It's like that night scene at the train station. Yeah. Uh, that scene looks amazing, which is obviously a running theme throughout the movie, but it's a great scene. I love scene. that he chooses to set scenes in cool settings like that. It's like, yes. I don't know. Yes. I just, I, that scene was so moody and atmospheric. I loved it. Creepy. And he gives that speech about how much money they're going to make. And the people around him, you could tell initially there's some hesitation, but it always takes one person to break through and yep. say yes. So he has that speech. He walk, turns around and walks away, and there's kind of a silence over the crowd. And then one person steps forward, and the others start kind of filtering. Kind of zombie-like. And yeah, it totally zombie-like. But it's just a really cool, really great performance and a fucking dope Love scene. It. I really, really yeah. Like but it. I'm a big fan of him in this movie. Um, John Hurt. Uh, we, we've been talking about the prologue. He's yeah. great in the prologue and kind of, he, he doesn't have a whole lot of function in the rest of the story, I would say. And I don't totally understand it. I don't really know his arc, but I do like his presence. I agree with you. The character doesn't really change much. We're introduced to him and he's clearly opposed to everything that's going on. Um, but he doesn't do anything to stop I, it. And he kind of just hovers I there. I wonder if his function was intended to be a little bit like a Greek chorus type thing where he's just kind of observing everything going on and commenting on it. Because, I mean, like yeah. in the final battle, his function is literally just to kind of sit there and be like, oh, this is crazy. Like, oh, look at all this yeah, stuff he's, happening. He's got a bit of a death wish. Like, he's checked out. Yeah, I don't really know point. what the hell his deal is. But I think he's just kind of, yeah. he's one of those guys, He he's kind of... Um, what Christofferson could have been in an alternate life. Like, you know, he, like if yeah. he didn't re- repel against his upbringing, you know? Yeah. He also might be kind of, um, exemplary of a character or type of person in real life that is involved indirectly in these th- terrible things happening right. where they're like people who recognize something terrible and, and, foul yeah, as like foot, ben, banal, but they don't do banal anything evil it. like the the, the nazis yeah. who just went along with that kind of thing yeah they they're witnessing something they know it's wrong but they don't have the tools or the wherewithal or the motivation to try to put a yeah. stop to it so maybe that's kind of what he's i think you're spot on i think that's probably what it yeah. what his purpose is and i like him as an actor he just doesn't he just I do doesn't, too. Uh, yeah. doesn't get a ton to do in this movie i would say outside of the opening of it and maybe it's kind of something interesting about seeing a character that doesn't arc like obviously that's such a common thing in film you hear that all the time it's like oh he's got a great arc sometimes people don't change right. in life sometimes they just stay and the sometimes same that's more the interesting and it, yeah and it's kind of cool to see yeah. that but i i agree like i like seeing him on camera uh, great performance, and he was in another one of my favorite shots. Remember when the mercenaries are arriving on train, and there's that gr- and the the way they play with smoke and steam oh. and dust in this movie visually is amazing. But that and there's one. a scene where John Hurt is kind of by himself talking, like three weeks drinking out of his flask, and the smoke is just billowing and and starting to clear, and you see the mountains behind him. It's just well, so and then the smoke cool. envelops John Hurt, and it cuts when yep. he's enveloped, so it's like almost like it just disappears him from the frame. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really fucking cool. sick. But yeah, um, Hurt is dope. Hurt yeah, is dope. Uh, you've mentioned Jeff Bridges, you know, a little bit earlier in this conversation, but, you know, he's one of my all-time favorite actors. I think he's brilliant. Um, I'm so excited now, especially with now the Michael Cimino connection being known. I'm so fucking excited to watch Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Me too, um, me too. You need to go back and watch uh, Starman. I'm still obsessed with that performance ever since I saw it. I think it's fucking incredible. But anyway, I love this guy, and I think he is like he is the perfect warm and empathetic presence to put at the center of that immigrant community. 
um, because he just immediately you you're like I want to protect this man. Like I love this guy. I he, like he seems like the kind of guy who I want to have a beer with, and I want to make sure that he stays alive at all costs. And and shout out to to the costume yeah. department across the board with this movie. Uh, the gargantuan task. It, it's a sympathetic hat. hat. His 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 <laughs> his kind of outfits are awesome. They fit his character so I well. Just want to dress like Jeff him Bridges. now. Yeah, he's got the suspenders. He's got that hat, and he. I like. I like what you're saying. He's a very warm and supportive human being, and also a great. You know, I get obsessive with character intros. Great introduction with this cockfight, which you know, again, morally questionable, <laughs> but a really, really cool scene, yeah. and the shot of him like walking over to the bar to chat with Jim. It's just so sick, and I just loved. I loved his character. I think he was really, really great in this movie. And also, shout out to Chris Christopherson for the size of that shot. That first shot of whiskey he takes, it's like a a cup. And he just that's a man who shot like, whiskey eh. before. Last one that I wanted to hit real quick. Uh, how familiar are you with uh, Brad Dourif? Pretty familiar, okay. I would say. Um, I've I recognized him. From Lord of the Rings. Which, okay, so hold I, on. That, I mean, that's the one that, like, if, if people don't know. So the guy who plays, uh, I'm going to look up his character name real quick. The guy who plays Mr. Eggleston, he's the glasses-wearing German man who, uh, you know, is kind of one of the leaders of the immigrant community. He clearly commands a lot of respect. That guy it, with the short, kind of curly, light brown hair is the same guy who plays fucking Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings, one of the most vile, like, sidekick henchman bad guy characters in, in all of, you know, epic storytelling. And it's like, those two characters look nothing alike. This is a guy that disappears into characters, and I find him fascinating. For sure. Like, he's not German. I think he's from from England or America. If you I don't hear know where him talk, he's, he's like, "Yeah, I talk kind of like this. I'm from West Virginia, yeah. and I, you know, like that. Yeah. He he's he's a Southern kind of, you know, just very kind of weird, squirrely artist type. But but he's got great control over his voice, and and because I also was very familiar with him in Deadwood. Mm-hmm. He plays a he plays a uh, arguably a primary character in that show. Um, that's a very large, sprawling cast. It's kind of one of those sorts of shows. But he's amazing in that. Totally different voice than this German immigrant that he's mm-hmm. playing now. Different, Very different voice than, than Wormtongue. And then you told me something that I had no so idea, which blew me he away. He is also the voice of Chucky, the evil doll. Crazy. <laughs> crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Uh Go back and watch Child's Play and imagine that that's the same guy giving that like Germanic kind of riled up speech, speech like to get them ready yeah. to fight. Like it's it's so crazy yeah. to think that's the same guy. Yeah. I don't know. Anything else we want to hi- highlight? I think like, you know, I just kind of wanted to wrap up just by saying like, you know, I really love that we were able to enjoy this movie on its own terms now. Yeah. Yeah. Because I really, I was, what what is the hubbub? You know, again, I know cost a ton of money, bankrupted a studio. Blah, a lot blah, of people blah. lost like, their jobs. This is a good whatever. movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like this is a good movie. It is. Like it's, it's it is bloated. It is it it operates on its own rhythm and pace. It's very and which is also kind of a bit of a western trope. Like there are a shit ton of very slow, patient westerns. It's kind of part of the the charm of it. Yeah. You know, um, 
So this movie is really its own beast in a lot of ways, but I think it's really good. Again, a little bloated. Um, I myself wasn't super excited by the climactic battle scene. I thought it was just... uh, it didn't really have the stakes for me. See, I loved I, and, it. I think the, they did a great job. Yeah. Of, and, you know, this is a whole other topic. I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I do love that the battle escalates. Like, it has layers yeah. to it. And, you know, you start with one sequence, and then, it you know, they have the the scene overnight where they're creating the, the contraptions where they're going to, you know, attack them again in the morning. And, like, I, I don't know. There's... I do love epic filmmaking like that. And I think that this movie does a great job. The dynamite when they, they escalate there. Yeah. And then just like the utter devastation at the end of it all with everybody dead. And the, the woman who like, you know, shoots herself in the head and like, it's fucking, it's that so crazy. like, I think you only get to that point and have that be emotionally effective by having that build up through all of that. But it, it worked for me and I love that kind of stuff. But you know, I, 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 I respect that it didn't work for you. You you loved it overall. Like I, I don't know what. How do you feel about just like the history that this is saddled with? Um, I think it's really unfair. Honestly, I think this movie deserves to be recognized on its own terms as a really unique film. Very very particular type of people will like this. You know, it's not for everybody. But I I kind of get. I'm kind of sad that it's so. The story behind its creation is so ahead of what the movie itself actually is. It kind of bums me out because I think it's it's absolutely worth seeing. I don't think it's a perfect film, but I think there is some really sensational and amazing stuff in it. Totally worth time. And I would say split it up over two nights would be my recommendations, which is what mm-hmm. I did. But it's just it's kind of there's something about it that's heartbreaking that it was this big failure and it's like it could have been so good though we it should is be talking really good. about this in the same sentence as we talk I th- about i think it's one of my favorite westerns I've well ever but seen, i'm saying we know? should I be think... talking about this at the same time that we talk about you know the uh, like like i said earlier like dr Zhivago, like lawrence of arabia ben-hur intolerance yeah these massive hollywood gladiators yeah sure um yeah. like the ones where it's just like, wow, I cannot believe that they put all of this in that frame. Like, that's the kind of movie yeah. this is. Like, if nothing else, it's worth watching for the spectacle alone. I just want to give one last um, little quick, like, holy shit shot. Shout <laughs> sure, out. Final shout out. The, f- the first time the train arrives at the station in mm-hmm. town and they, that Irish character kind of walks out, that shot which starts tracks with him through the crowd of people in in the train station building and then it it cut it kind of dollies to a window and he walks out and you we're filming from out of the window as he approaches the train that's one of the best shots i have ever seen and it's so gorgeous the way when he first of all technically it's astounding the camera moves everything's perfect when he makes that move towards the train there's this unbelievable color palette light shift from the tr- the smoke that the train is do is creating is casting a shadow but beyond the shadow there's this like soft glow golden glow and as he approaches it the smoke from the train clears out and the rest of the walkway starts to brighten it just looks unlike any shot i've ever seen it's so beautiful 
and it was stunning. stunning. And again, the movie is stuffed with things. No, no, I mean, if you if there's one word I could use to describe this movie, it's stunning. Like, like yeah, that, I agree. It, that's the only word you need. I mean, yeah, uh, I, I anyone that just wants to watch a movie that basically every image in the entire movie is a, a fucking painting, like pick this one up it's a great watch and get the criterion man like go support that company support like you know like film restoration and and support classic film like i I think it's it's a really worthwhile uh use of uh your money especially like if you're gonna go like you know see uh fucking sonic the hedgehog 2 or whatever like spend the money on this instead all right well that'll do it i think on the uh the chat for heaven's gate here i'm really glad we watched this i'm i'm very, very, very happy with uh, with the choice for this week from the dartboard. Yeah, I am too, dude. And so different than Moulin Rouge, a kinetic, zany, wild <laughs> we needed movie. A peaceful, uh, serene. Yeah, this was just <laughs> you know slow burn, heartbreaking. You know. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, great choice. Now, the natural question, of course, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is Drew's week for replacement film. Sure is. Do you have? candidates i do i've got a few of them actually um i'm i'm i've got it narrowed down to three in my head two of them are working on pretty epic scale one of them a little less so but they're all kind of all kind of playing in the space because i kind of i kind of like i kind of liked the feel of this and i i want to i want to do something uh somewhat in the realm something big yeah something big something big something big yeah. i like it so I told you last week that I've been watching this show for all mankind, which I finished at this point. Uh, very, very nice. awesome show. I've, I've had a really great time watching it. I uh, didn't love the end of season two, but you know, it's coming back for season three pretty soon. And uh, yeah, I'm hooked on it and I'm, I'm hooked on space stuff, feeling space stuff. Ooh, space. We don't have anything space. Sure on the board, so I'm curious where you're going with this. It's a movie that I've never seen, but is a classic. I'm going with the right stuff. Oh, okay. Yep, yep, yep. I fully endorse this. Another kind of bigger bloated movie. I saw it when I was a kid. I don't really have a strong memory of it. I'd love to see it again. I think this is a great This choice. is one of my uh, my late father's all-time favorite movies that I never got around to seeing. And uh, it's time to check it off. Nice, dude. I'll be excited to just talk about it with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. That'll be, that'll be, that'll be sweet. Right. Whenever we hit it, whenever we so, hit it. So, The Right Stuff is going on the board. Uh, 1983 Was it number film. three? Yep. Well, let's recap the current board here. So, we've got at number one, You Can Count on Me. At number two, Ex Machina. At number three, The New Edition, The Right Stuff. At number four, The Big Sleep. At number five, Operation Condor. Number six, The Sixth Sense. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Alan Partridge. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, Big Daddy. Number 11, Vertigo. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot by Michael Cimino. Number 14, The King of Comedy. Number 15 Barton Fink, number 16 Putney Swope, number 17 Mother, number 18 The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, number 19 On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and at number 20 The Ballad of Cable Hogue. Big dog, baby. <laughs> you know, I gotta say, I'm honestly hoping for Cable oh, well, Hogue. We, yeah, what, like what do a, you hope? You're, is that is that your, your number one choice right now? I think so, because, um, I mean, it's that or Alan Partridge, but I think it would be interesting to go from 
one Western to another. We got the big dog. I think it's a very different type of Western based on what I know of it. So I'm kind of pulling for 20, but I won't be aiming. I'm kind of. What I want is to hit a number we've never hit before. I'm really rooting for number 19 on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think that would be super fun. fun. I've been craving a Bond movie lately. Um, And I also am very, very excited for you to finally knock off your shamer at The Sixth Sense. Yeah, that, I, I thought of that too when you hit it. I was like, maybe it's time for that. We'll see. All right. Well, let's see what the dart has let's to say. It. All right, love it. The dart has spoken, Drew. Oh, yeah? What's the dart got to say today? The dart says 15. 15. 15. What do we got? To 1991 for Barton Fink, the Joel and Ethan Cohen. This is one of my uh, my Cohen shamers. I, I I haven't knocked this one off, but man, it's uh, I'm on another streak here, man. We, we're doing more Drew stuff. That's that's. Hey, I'm I'm down with that, man. I really liked Heaven's Gate, and we'll talk about it next week. But I also have not seen Barton Fink, so I'm I'm excited about oh, this. Yeah. Well, Barton Fink is the choice then for next week. Um, you want to do a little streaming check here, Jared? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of good pay-to-rent options from time of recording. We got Google Play for three ninety-nine, Apple TV three ninety-nine, Vudu, Amazon Prime, YouTube, all three ninety-nine. So definitely available to rent. You can actually on streaming. Uh, just uh, to add to that, you can actually buy it on Amazon Prime. Uh, you know, I don't recommend not buying the physical media, but if you want to buy the digital uh, license to watch it whenever you want, it's only a dollar more than renting it. So I think it's uh, going to be a great choice for next week. 90s, our first Coen Brothers movie. First Coens that we're covering on the show. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, this will be cool, man. Yeah. I'm excited. Barton Fink next week. Yep. Well, that'll do it for us today. Um, go check out all the backstory and all the amazing stories surrounding Heaven's Gate. It's an awesome movie that deserves to be reappraised. So give it a watch. Um, Next week, we'll be here with Barton Fink. See you then. Later. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or if you have a bullseye selection you want to send our way, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. If it's for the bullseye, make sure you use subject line bullseye confidential. Follow us on Instagram at Dartboard Movie Night. Artwork for the show was created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. <laughs>